Welcome everyone to the third episode of the AHPBA podcast and our second episode in our master's series. Tim and I were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to spend some time with Dr. Rebecca Minter while we were at a conference this spring. Dr. Minter is the A.R. Carreri Distinguished Chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, not to mention past president of the HPBA. Dr. Minter has been chief of HPB divisions at multiple major academic institutions before taking the helm at the University of Wisconsin and an international leader in HPB surgery. Further, Dr. Minter is a true thought leader in the field of surgical education, specifically as it relates to progression through training towards autonomy, entrustment, and developing strategies to evaluate and implement innovative training paradigms. The weather was absolutely perfect for our meeting, and we tried to simulate conversations we would all have with mentors while at meetings outside in between sessions. Unfortunately, the natural environment provided some background sounds which may either add or detract from the ambiance. We'll let you decide. Regardless, we learned a lot from Dr. Minter and are excited to have her on our third episode in the AHPBA podcast. All right, so Tim and Tim here again with our podcast for the AHPBA, and we're very fortunate to be at the Academic Surgical Congress this morning um, as part of our master's series with Dr. Rebecca Minter, uh, who needs no introduction, past president of the AHPBA, and um, a great leader in the field of HPB surgery. So uh, the first thing we wanted to talk about is just kind of, you know, your road to chair, how you got to where you are, you know, a little bit about your training, your mentors along the way and kind of uh, how you became who you are. Well, that is a long and circuitous path. <laughs> um, so, you know, my career path started off um, actually a little bit rocky. I actually started off as a preliminary intern at the University yeah. of Florida. And um, it's a long story behind that, but in a <laughs> difficult time, as you might imagine. And fortunately, uh, Ted Copeland um, offered me a job to stay. Um, and so, uh, he was one of my really first uh, great mentors and really sort of looked out for me, helped launch my career um, in residency. So ended up then uh, spending two years in the lab in T32 um, under Link Moldau, really focused in sepsis, nothing to do with uh, oncology or yeah. GI cancer, which is probably my focus now, and met my husband um, during residency. So we... Um, we got married, and then at the end of training, um, he was pursuing a vascular surgery fellowship, and at that time, we had been like half of the call schedule for three years, and decided that if I did a fellowship at that point, we would probably not be married, and so <laughs> decided that staying married was the top priority, so, um, and I felt really fortunate to have been really, really well trained in um, GI surgery at the University of Florida. We had, at that time, very few fellows. Um, we did a ton of esophagectomies, and pancreatectomies. It's why though I don't do liver surgery because I didn't feel like I had sufficient training um, mm. in doing uh, hepatectomies and uh, managing those diseases because um, that really hadn't been a deep part of our training. So went to Michigan as the fellow's wife, um, which was wow. a major uh, kind of blow to the ego at the time. And I <laughs> almost actually didn't enter academics, which would have been a completely different path um, because I almost let my ego sort of get in the way of things and so um, almost took a job in the community for two years while John finished his fellowship and then it, it just 
fortuitously happened that a job at the VA opened up at the University of Michigan, so I was hired initially as a clinical instructor there. Um, just paid what the VA would pay, and uh, and that was the best thing that ever happened. So I started, um, had very, my mentors from Florida connected me with mentors uh, there at Michigan. I submitted my K award and really sort of shifted my sepsis work to be more on um, uh, liver, liver dysfunction and sepsis and the impact of liver failure um, on sepsis. And uh, kind of less than a year into being at Michigan, they offered me a tenure track position and then we ended up staying there for, for 12 years. So completely, you know, fortuitous the way it worked out. And uh, it also happened that when I started at the VA, the thoracic surgeon who had been doing all these ophagectomies had left, and so none of Dr. Oranger's colleagues were terribly interested in going to the VA, so I was able to actually yeah. step into that practice, and wow. so we really had a practice of colorectal, esophageal, and pancreas um, wow. at our VA, so it was a very unique... That sounds like a stressful practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a great practice. Never leak. No. Yeah, of course. Never. Um, yeah, so, um, but it was it was great, and so I spent my first four years at the, at the VA, but then when I transitioned over to the university four years later, Dr. Oranger, who's a great friend of mine, was also... It was kind of an unspoken understanding that I would stop doing esophagectomies because the university only uh, our thoracic surgeons uh, performed those operations. So then at that point really pivoted um, more to uh, pancreatic biliary practice and, and that's increasingly kind of now, especially as chair, I joke that I do uh, whipples and cholecystectomies. So I do lap coli so I can operate with the interns and yeah. <laughs> I operate on the pancreas and that's about it. Um, because it's hard, I think, with all the other demands to sure. stay expert sure. um, as, as the field is changing so rapidly and, and multiple diseases. So um, so then when we were at Michigan, my husband was recruited to be the chief of vascular surgery at UT Southwestern. So we went to UT Southwestern, um, and I was the chief of HPV there as, um, as I had been at Michigan, and then um, really not much sooner than I expected the just the kind of the right chair opportunity came along at Wisconsin, and so we we moved sooner than my husband would have liked. Um, right. <laughs> he really enjoyed his job um, in Dallas, and um, so but it was the right opportunity for our family. So we yeah. have three young kids, and it was a lot. It's a lot easier to have two busy careers and three young kids in a place like Madison or Ann Arbor than it is in Dallas. So um, yeah, so that's been my path. What about your, you know, your interest in education and mm -hmm. the non-clinical side? Yeah. How did that kind of come to be and grow? Yeah, that's another, I think, um, kind of circuitous part of my story. So going to Michigan, you know, the kind of traditional model there had been that of the triple threat, you know, basic scientist, and, and I loved my basic science. Um, but I also was very, always very passionate about education. From the time I was a resident, I was on the board of the ACGME and the AAMC and um, had always been very passionate about those issues. And there were a series of things that happened with my lab, um, with my, uh, my mentors leaving and constantly sort of changing. And I ultimately found that I, the things I was, you know, staying up worrying about or thinking about the problems I wanted to solve were much more in the domain of education than they were in the lab of curing sepsis and liver failure. 
And so eventually, as you get busier in lots of different areas, you have to choose. And, um, and it was at that point, it was the right, it, the choice was obvious at that point, but it was a hard choice because the path was not entirely clear as an yeah. academic surgeon that education was viewed as a viable or true scholarly focus at that time. Yeah. And so it was a little bit of a risk um, to follow that path, but it ultimately um, was the path that was clearly the right one for me. Very clearly. So, um, I'd like to get towards more how have things changed at Wisconsin now that you're, you're there and have developed a lot of the issues around competency and um, a lot of your work on basic, on how to uh, educate the next generations of, of physicians. But I wanted to start with just asking you, um, how, how do you see the progression of young surgeons from day one? You say you're doing cholecystectomy with them as an intern, and then you probably have them come back and you're doing Whipples with them at their end of their, at the end of their residency. How does that, you know, is that the same um, length of time for people, or is there a, a different um, temporal pattern for, for different residents? I think certainly there is a different temporal pattern. I think, um, I guess the first thing I would say is that one of the favorite, my favorite times of year are one, when we're recruiting residents and two graduation because the process really works um it doesn't work perfectly and that, that's the area of focus is making it better but i would say you know it's always amazing to me to see how people come in completely undeveloped and they leave as as right. very well-trained surgeons um i think that the challenges though that we have in terms of what that that process looks like is that you know it's changed a lot from when i was a resident we at small services, we spent three months at a time with faculty. They got to know us, we got to know them. There was trust that was developed. It's sort of why fellowship works so well because you have much um, more, you have much deeper contact with fewer individuals and you're able to um, make progress more quickly in that scenario. And so, in addition, I think, um, I don't think the quote, good old days are the good old days where we just like let people figure it out on their own yeah. in the OR, because from the patient's perspective, that was not, not ideal. Of course. <laughs> but I think the flip side of that is if we're going to be present in the operating room, we have to figure out how to slowly peel back that supervision. And it's very hard to be in the operating room and not be operating. And right. so there, I think... There was, a, there was a quote in this editorial you did with Dr. Greenberg that I wrote down. It said it requires staff to learn how to be present and not perform the surgery. Yes. I thought that was a great quote. It's that's very like, hard. That's... I, mean, I always say I can do half of the whipple with the suction, um, and you just don't realize how much assistance you're providing. It's something as simple as not letting somebody set the retractor up incorrectly yeah. and struggling with that. And you know, nothing bad happens to the patient if you let somebody struggle for a couple of minutes because the retractor is in the wrong location. But they'll never do that again because they will remember that struggle versus if I just correct it every single time, then when I'm not there, it's like, well, where on the bar was this yeah. supposed to go? You know, they're just simple, minor things. But if we don't figure out how to be present but not do the operation, it's um, it, it's a huge, maybe we're keeping the patient right there, very, very safe that's in front of us, but then we're putting patients further down the line at risk because we're then turning out a workforce that actually doesn't know what they don't know because there's always been multiple layers of support that they weren't even aware were there with them in the operating room. It's, it's interesting you said, you know, fellowship works better because you, I mean, you, your rotations are a little more focused, but the interesting thing about fellowship is that you're there for a short time, particularly like a one-year fellowship. 
I, I can't imagine it must be very difficult to get to that point of uh, being entrusted when you have, you know, our, our fellowship, we had 25 staff and we had two years to get to know all of them. And, you know, it, I think there's unique challenges in, in the fellowship just because the time period is so short. And so yeah. you just don't get as many chances to be exposed and be entrusted. And I think that, you know, the two, you know, at Memorial and at MD Anderson is a little bit of a unique circumstance where you do have a lot of staff yeah. in a shorter period of time. I would say most fellowships um, aren't like that. Most okay. fellowships are a smaller group of staff. And yeah. so you have a lot more repetitions with the same individuals. Sure. I certainly know, you know, Matt Katz and I have talked about that at, at length, that sure. there has to be sufficient contact before you have trust, before you're willing to turn over. Yeah. the operation well and, um, and to our the AHPB audience I mean these are not easy operations right. you know and so I think it's it's a unique challenge to when you're talking about a Whipple you know right. how much even your chief resident a month before they graduate are you leaving the room at the beginning and end of the case or how much how much autonomy can you really give in a case like that yeah I think it's a great question I I don't leave the room I feel like you know I've committed to that patient that I'm going right, to be there from right, beginning right. to end. Um, but I do give the right angle to the chief resident. Yeah. I think it really, it's hard because we don't get to do enough repetition with an individual chief to get to that place yeah. of turning the whole thing over um, for a very complex operation. And I think it's it's also the judgment and the slowing down moments and how sure, do we sure. accelerate that training. You know, Caroline Moulton's done some great work with the... Um, the modules that we have on MyHPB in terms of judgment and looking and seeing how different experts are thinking about a case differently before um, before the case in terms of thinking about where where am I likely to get into trouble with this operation where yeah. and it's not the same the heuristics everybody has slightly different heuristics and so how can we teach that um, mm -hmm. outside of getting into trouble and then usually you don't make the same mistake twice yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but that's pattern recognition and how do we expose um, trainees to that um, more readily. And the other thing is, is that the skills carry over. So you know, many of the operations I do today, I didn't ever do in training. And so there, it's not, it's not this, it, it's the skills are more fluid. And so it's getting to a place where one of the, the major tenets of entrustment is do people know their boundaries? Do they know when yeah. to slow down? Mm. Do they know when to pause and ask for help? And, and, um, that's probably as important as knowing the steps of the operation, if True. not more, yeah. than, um, than the idea that you know how to do the dissection perfectly. So I thought, just to finish that real quick, you know, I guess you identified that where we trained um, is a little bit different than most of the fellowship models because of the, the large number of faculty that we work with. But even though in residency you had three, sometimes six months, depending on whether you went on a service and then came back with certain attendings, your progression through the training program does kind of follow you. So, mm -hmm. you know, before I, I would come on your service as a resident, you probably heard from other faculty how yeah. my performance was. And that does lead to entrustability, I'm sure, at least. Mm -hmm. Because everyone's going to come to you with a different level of confidence and um, yeah. judgment, as you said. But um, in fellowship, the, I guess the hope is that everyone has a certain level right. that they start with and that your model every time a new fellow comes around is start here and end here, but that's obviously not the way it is. Right. Um, and that, you know, is a, bit, a huge question for me 
um, and I'm sure a lot of our young faculty who are learning how to become master educators, is how to develop an efficient way to get to what you think is some a product you're willing to now go out and practice with complete autonomy. Yeah. So I think we have failed our trainees in terms of creating that shared mental model, which is what you're talking yeah. about, of what people should look like mm -hmm. um, at each level uh, to progress. And when people aren't progressing, helping them understand how they're going to get there. We don't, we don't give focused feedback and we don't, and we don't necessarily even all agree on what we're trying to achieve yeah, sometimes. Yeah. And I think there's tremendous heterogeneity in the incoming fellow product. And you're right, you have a short time then to move people along. And that was really kind of the premise of the fellowship council study that we, that we did. And so I think that the goal is from the work we're doing now with respect to, um, faculty development and entrustable professional activities as a competency-based assessment framework is trying to create that shared mental model so that we can, in a more objective way, say, you know, Tim is at, you know, I would entrust him in indirect supervision because I saw him do these specific behaviors during this case. And the idea is that you see multiple different assessments across multiple contexts, multiple conditions, and then over time, we've seen Tim enough in enough different circumstances. So I think that we say, you know, we've seen Tim enough in enough different contexts, enough different conditions, and we trust that Tim knows his boundaries and that Tim will ask for help and that Tim's not a cowboy that's going to go out and do things to my patient that are unsafe. Right that we then come up with what's called the summative entrustment decision. And that's kind of what the clinical competency committee does, is they right. sit together and they look at all of these micro-assessments over time and say, you know what, we think that he's ready. It's, it's a crazy idea to think that you're ever going to be ready for every possible scenario when you finish training. Right. Well, that's, not, right. that's not true for anybody. But the idea is, is that you know enough, that you're safe, and that you know when you're starting to get outside of the boundaries of what you can do and that you'll ask a partner for help. Right. You know, that's really yeah. what we want at graduation. It's clearly the, especially for something as complex as HPB, a lot of your growth obviously continues after your training. Oh, yeah. You just hope you're True. given the skills to move forward. And we were talking about this as well, and that it's much like taking care of a patient after a complex operation, and that you're, you're laying the groundwork for the majority of your healing to be done safely at home. Right. And so, how do you, in your mind, find the predictors that you know this person's ready to leave the hospital, or this person's ready to practice autonomously, because um, obviously complex. Yeah. So do you, do you have any kind of practical things that you guys are doing there? I know you know you guys have published on a lot of this stuff, but what does that look like in your kind of week-to-week -week interaction with a resident? Are yeah. you using something specific to give them feedback after the OR? Mm -hmm. I know you guys have published on the OpTrust. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that project. And Yeah, absolutely. So OpTrust is really about faculty kind of both ways, and right? trainee yeah. development. And so just, you know, I can have a faculty member who imparts tremendous entrustment, but if, if the trainee on the other side, either resident or fellow, you know, just stands there and doesn't do anything, then I can give all the entrustment in the world yeah. and they're not demonstrating entrustable behaviors. Sure. So OpTrust is really about trying to increase um, self-awareness, both faculty, both resident, and giving them some behaviors for what does entrustability look like for the trainee and then what do entrustment behaviors look like for the faculty. So it's really a direct observation tool for faculty and resident development or fellow development. Um, 
the EPA initiative, on the other hand, which really goes hand in hand because you can have EPAs, but if, again, you have a faculty member who never turns over the right angle, yeah. who never yeah. is able to peel back what they do, then you can have EPAs, but who knows if if the fellow is ready or if the right. resident is right. ready. So, so they really are complementary tools, and they're meant to also be an intervention to use OpTrust for people who are struggling in terms of those behaviors. Um, EPAs, on the other hand, which I find to be very exciting, and we um, uh, have completed the HPB EPAs um, Fellowship Council, which will um, be a nice addition, um, building on the general surgery EPAs, which will continue to build out, is this idea that you know, the competency rubric really hasn't worked for us. People, you know, rewrote all of their evaluations in the competencies, you know, systems-based practice, professionalism. Yeah. That's not how we take care yeah, of patients. Yeah, yeah. Of and so people are like, I liked him. He's a four. He's a five. He's, a, you know, whatever. So, um, and beneath, and our milestones are all very vague. So yeah. the idea of the EPAs is if you come to me as a faculty member and say, you know, Rebecca, would you trust Tim to... Um, evaluate and manage a patient with pancreatic cancer, I would immediately be able to say, number one, trust is an important frame because trust is very different than a Likert scale that isn't connected um, to that personal value of what I trust you to, to care for my mother or my father with pancreatic cancer. It really shifts how you think about that assessment. In addition, I immediately would be able to say, well, I would trust him to do the preoperative evaluation, he can read the images, he knows what the right slowing down moments are, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Not yet independent in the operating room, needs to work on XYZ, entrustable in the post-operative setting. Like it's it touches all of the competencies, but it's it's in a construct that I as a pancreatic surgeon can immediately relate to. Mm -hmm. And it makes the feedback much more useful and focused around a disease or condition. Underneath it are the competencies and milestones, and you can unpack it as such, but um, but it really makes it much more relatable. So then for each level of entrustment, there's a described behavior that we're looking for for each level of entrustment. So it's taking that subjective kind of gut feeling and putting some structure to it to then be able to say, I'm saying you're only entrustable with direct supervision because I didn't see you do this, this, or this, or you stuck your right angle in the portal vein and there was massive blood loss, or, you know, whatever it might be, but yeah. it's very... It's bad, Tim. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Yes, you ripped the middle colic vein, whatever it might be, you yeah. know. So, but you give the very specific feedback and then those, again, micro-assessments tell a story over time and it helps us identify people a lot earlier who are struggling and um, because our once a month kind of end of rotation evaluations just don't capture that kind of data. They don't paint that picture. So uh, again, how often are you doing that then? Are you, do you guys have an app where you're giving some feedback after we every do, case or do you want to put a plug in yeah. for anything? We that we could... So we developed our own app, I think only because um, we were fortunate to have the expertise to do so. There are a few different people innovating um, with different things and certainly the simple app is another one that folks have used. I think the key thing for EPAs is that you have to see the defined behaviors otherwise people just end up using the entrustment scale as a Likert scale yeah. um, and the whole idea of EPAs is that you have those described behaviors that people are anchoring to. So for our app either the faculty or the trainee can initiate it at the 
end of an interaction, whether it's in clinic or in the OR, and it just comes straight to us. And then it takes literally like a minute. You pick the defined um, level of entrustment based on the descriptions, and then you dictate feedback. And then it goes to the resident. The resident will self-assess when they send it to us. If we do it first, then they self-assess before they can see your feedback. And so we're able to see the self-assessment as well as our assessment. Sure. And then our clinical competency committee every six months looks at all of the assessments for each resident for those five EPAs, because okay. right now we have five EPAs. And then kind of switching gears to your faculty. So as a, you know, as a leader of faculty, and how do you deal with that when you have a faculty who's not doing a good job of appropriate and trusting and mm -hmm. uh, you know do you think that's a thing that you need to look for when you're hiring people or is it something yeah. you try to modify after is it too late after they've been hired <laughs> so it's hard to identify in advance yeah, right? yeah. You're, especially if you're hiring somebody out of training right. I think it's a common common scenario for um, people who are shifted, making that pivot from being a trainee to being in faculty to um, under in trust mm -hmm. because they're not confident yet but it is surprising we've we've looked at this um because this was a common um misconception when we were starting they said oh well junior faculty were there was no relationship between years in practice and level of entrustment we had some very senior faculty who um were terrible at entrusting yeah. residents and some who were great likewise we had some brand new fresh out of training junior faculty who demonstrated high levels of entrustment and some who demonstrated very low levels of entrustment. People mm. generally are who they are at yeah. their core. Yeah. And I think, can people change? I, I think they have to want to change. We absolutely have had faculty when I was at Michigan that, um, you know, you'd come in and you'd start observing with OpTrust and they initially would, you know, make a big show of giving the residents all the instruments and then literally 10 minutes into the case, they had their hands back on everything. <laughs> I can't help um, themselves. They just couldn't <laughs> help themselves. But um, but for those individuals, they came, they said, I want to watch my video. I want to see, like, hmm. what I'm doing. And so being able to show them the behaviors, show them the video, and if they really wanted to change, it's kind of like coaching for bad behavior right yeah. like if somebody really wants to change they can change if somebody's really not interested in changing then then they're not going to change yeah so but it doesn't it's not in any way connected to years in practice it's really i think more connected to people's interest and commitment to to training and then i guess the last comment i make is that there are people who are, are excellent teachers of junior residents and there are people who are excellent teachers of senior residents so i don't think it's a black and white good or bad sure. sort of scenario and some of it may just be getting them in the right place with um, with the right level of learner um, because if you have a very junior person and there's somebody who's very patient giving them that step-by-step -step instruction might be very positive um, but when they're still doing that to the chief that's a problem. People are generally not able to flex very much. Yeah. So how um, at Wisconsin, um, in both residency and, and maybe even in fellowships, have you used some of this objective data to structure your education? Yeah. So we're just now launching our strategic plan and our education pillar really is focused on the advancement of competency-based training paradigms. And so we're trying to leverage a couple of areas of unique expertise. One is under the work that myself and Jake Greenberg and others have done with respect to the EPAs, OpTrust. Um, 
but then also trying to leverage um, as an intervention the coaching work that that Caprice um, Greenberg has really led and, and a lot of that work was initially focused solely on kind of senior surgeons mentoring other surgeons and doing the operation but they've now actually expanded that to um, kind of master educator mm. coaching so individuals who really are viewed as being fantastic educators can they be coaches for to your point for the individuals who are yeah. struggling and coming into the operating room observing using a tool like OpTrust or um, or video assess based assessment and giving feedback and again really giving direct coaching in that space so those will be a major focus of our strategic um, strategic right. plan going forward in the education domain yeah. I mean I could see do the faculty who do a great job of training junior residents regardless of the complexity of their mm -hmm. case do they see more junior residents during their time and is yeah that, is, that a, is that a penalty or is that a plus does that make people passionate about it you know we have had many passionate data, discussions. Data. Um, data, data. I will tell you, we have, we have. It's interesting. We have very passionate opinions on both sides of that argument. I'm sure. Um, and so we we haven't gotten there yet. Um, I think we'll have to see. Um, I think we have individuals who feel very strongly that we should do exactly what you just said. It's hard in practice to do that, um, just with in terms of assignment, et cetera. Some of it too is, I will tell you, you know, from the work that we did at Michigan, developing the trainees is a key piece of this because the reality is if the trainees start asserting for more autonomy, if a trainee says to you in the operating room, you know, Dr. Minter, I'd really like to do this dissection. I did this with Dr. Weber last week and with Dr. Abbott the week before. I'm not going to say no, right? Yeah. And so I might say I'd like to do this slightly differently or, you know, what have yeah. you. But if they, like, say that to me directly versus – and so what we found is we've seen a lot more um, assertiveness from the trainees at Michigan of can I have a little more time for a safe struggle? Can I – can I try? Yeah. Can I try this a little bit hmm. longer? They're very cognizant of the need for safety, and yeah. so this is never an issue of unsafe practice for patients. But when they start asserting for those opportunities, they tend to come. Um, so I think we'll see. We'll see yeah. how much we are able to tailor that. I think the realities of of practice and for the trainees also to have exposure to a broad array of people um that diversity of teacher is important too but um that might be more true for senior residents maybe yeah. it's good to learn one way to do something as a yeah. junior resident yeah. i don't think we know the answer yet yeah the last thing we kind of wanted to talk about was what you see changing in the next decade uh for general surgery residency from the acgme do you think that the this kind of three years of general surgery and then moving into subspecialty earlier is going to come to fruition, or how do you see these things changing over the next decade? Everybody has an opinion. Yeah, <laughs> there's no shortage of opinions. Sure. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> yes. yeah. just your best guess. Yes. <laughs> so I'll tell you what I. Uh, yes, I'll give you yet another opinion. Um, <laughs> so I don't think we'll ever go to the three years. Yeah. I, I certainly not in the next decade. I think it's there's too many forces against that happening, but. I do think that we will finally codify what is general surgery through probably EPAs. Um, and what that means is that 
that is a floor, not a ceiling. But that is an attempt back to where we started this conversation of being able to say that every single board eligible graduating dermal surgery resident is entrusted to do these 25 things. Um, it doesn't mean they can't do other things, but at least there's some like consistent product at the end of general surgery training that that they're entrusted to do because we don't do that today we have a list of cases right. and you know certain number of years but there's not that level of transparency so there, there will be however many epas for general surgery it'll be people will have to be entrusted for those i'll have to have, have documentation as as to that plus whatever you know um competency-based assessments that might exist in addition to that. And the goal would be that if you were entrusted for those, let's say you were entrusted for all 25 of those at the end of year four, well, then that means then in year five, you can start moving into the fellow level mm -hmm. EPAs, right? So that you're that much further along when you start your fellowship. Um, and then you would go to your fellowship with this document that said, exactly. these board certified surgeons trusted me to do this. Right. Well, and you'd come in as a level two, right? So a lot yeah. of this is, like you said, you come into fellowship, people don't know you. They don't know right. what you can right. do, right? So if you come in and and you're at, you know, level two already for, yeah. or level three for, you know, evaluate and manage a patient with pancreas mass or evaluate and manage a patient yeah. with, you yeah. know, a hyler structure or whatever it might be it's just creating some transparency around what others felt you were able to do and yeah. this is our starting point yes I'm going to confirm that what they're saying is true but it does it gives you a little more credibility in sure. that space coming in now, do you think that those things would be available for an interview at fellowship you think that would be That's part like, of the yeah. selection oh, process right. I don't know I think there are a lot of people who would like that I think it's uh, Hard to know where that will land, but yeah. but maybe I think you know there's definitely a desire and a goal for transparency, sure. and and you could have some people who might say, well, actually, I prefer the person who's still a blank slate because I want to teach them the way I want to do it. Yeah. So I don't even know which way yeah. that might go, but you know, and in peds, they've defined that they would like people to have more time and not necessarily pediatric surgery, but maybe they need more thoracic, maybe they need more. So oh, that's a good point. I think that um, it, the goal would be to just have a more consistent product at the end of training and then starting to scaffold the next things for whatever yeah, path they're sure. going. Um, and how, do you just, how do you handle it if you have a R3 mm -hmm. who's just not there? Yeah. You know, and you only have so much time and they still have yep. to do the things that the other R4s have to do the next year. You know, if what do you, what do you do? If they're not ready, then they repeat a year. Okay. Yep. And um and, and sometimes it's a conversation of repeating a year or sometimes it's a conversation ideally before the end of the third year, but sometimes it is of is this the right yeah. path for them? I will say in internal medicine, um what they found is that the attrition rate has stayed the same, but they have found people much earlier and helped redirect them yeah. earlier. Because again, there's much greater visibility to who is struggling much earlier. And yeah. so the hope with the EPAs would be that if somebody is falling off the curve as compared to their peers, that that gets identified early. Because sure. what happens is, you know well, people get labeled and then they're not given the same opportunities mm -hmm. when they show up in the operating room. And then it just becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. At the end of the day, the patients want a competent surgeon, and if that takes an extra year from somebody, I mean, there's a lot of people um, that are out there who you would be surprised to learn who have repeated um, a year at some place in the training that 
are great surgeons. Yeah. They just needed yeah. a little more time. And, and I'm sure they needed a little more time at very critical junctures in their training. Yeah. Right? And more repetitions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So are there objective things at certain points in time in our development as surgeons, at which point in time those conversations need to occur? Like you said, yeah. hopefully it occurs early, but... I think... Um, so it's been an interesting journey with EPAs and surgeons because yeah. as surgeons we like things to be very checklisty <laughs> yes, and objective. Black or white data, yeah. And the reality is, is that those things don't work, right? right? Like so, this idea that, and and if you look at all of the factor analyses of other assessments, really the the one that is always the most meaningful is that overall evaluation in terms of predicting other uh, performance metrics. So I think. It's hard for people to think about this, even though it's putting some structure around that subjective feeling that it's not going to ultimately end in a final exam or a final test. Like, And the reason for that is because if you think about tools like the OPRS tool that we have every general surgery resident submit right. six of, we know it's a minimum of 10 for that assessment tool to be valid, yet everybody said that's going to be too hard. We can't do that. Mm. And that's for every operation you do, right? So this idea that we're going to have this big final exam that's going to, based on one interaction, are you then going to throw out 200 data points that preceded that one? And what if it's a hawk assessor? What if it's a really complex patient? What, you know, are you going to say, well, yes, we had 200 other data points that said they were trustable, but they didn't do well on this one 20-point yeah. checklist. So I think ultimately we're going to all have to get a lot more comfortable with um, these more frequent, these micro-assessments, these frequent repetitive um, evaluations, and then getting everybody in a room together for the clinical competency committee, and then finally having some data to look at. You know, when the clinical competency committees started meeting, it was an improvement, but sort of like, you know, I have no no data on which to make this assessment, yeah. you know. It's like wellness, like, um, <laughs> it's one of Should the milestones. Well. They look like they're in good shape. Yeah. They seem to exercise a lot. Um, it's a, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Maybe you have them into the dentist lately. Um, so, so I think that um, ultimately the idea is that we will actually now have some data that's not so generic in the competencies of systems-based practice communication, but we'll actually have like disease and condition data for how people are performing that touches all of the competencies in terms of communication and things. So I think we'll have much better data and we'll be able to see these things sooner. Um, ultimately though, and then that will be, that will be the build to a high stakes assessment. I don't see that, you know, the board Going exams going yeah. away, Did but you know, get rid of them by February twenty So, but what they look like in the future, I think, may be different. I think, particularly, the certifying exam will likely evolve. But there's definitely a desire um, for us to have a, a much more robust um, and transparent way that that we advance people in surgery, and that we're able to tell the public, here's what here's what these individuals can do that is not based solely on the exam. That, that for sure, I think is coming. Well, it's been great. We really appreciate your time. We know you have other places to go, but uh, any last things you want to plug to the AHPBA audience before we let you go? Gosh, um, I, think, I think it's an exciting time. And I think that, you know, HPB is really unique and that it really brings together 
the disciplines of oncology, transplant, and GI surgery in a way that's very unique to other, um, other disciplines. And I think the AHPBA is fortunate to really be the intersection of those groups. And so as we think about these things, we should be thinking of them together um, rather than in isolation of the different training silos. Sure. Well, thanks again for your time. It's been quite an honor to have you on our podcast. <laughs> and hopefully the listeners agree and learn something about a very fascinating topic. Thanks for having me.